It's great to hear uh, one of those old songs again sung. Um, I pray that you would meditate truly on how vast the love of God is for us, how vast His mercy is for His people. Friends, uh, one of the reasons why uh, we give these bulletins to you and we include the songs in these bulletins is that you may take these home with you and meditate on the songs we sing during the Sunday morning service throughout the week. Um, And some of the songs are songs we encourage you to memorize so that you have these truths memorized in your heart and ready to sing them uh, whenever you go through difficulties, whenever you go through times of temptation, that you would be reminded of these truths of God uh, that have been put to song. Well, this morning I encourage you to uh, consider the following question. Have you ever tried to oppose nature? We, we know as man, mankind, we try to oppose many things, many dangers. Um, and we tr- figure out a way to try to avoid the destruction of, of nature, the, the destruction that nature brings. But have you ever tried to oppose nature? Recently, we've been reminded how devastating the forces of water can be. As over 4,000 homes have been affected by the recent floods, several hundred of, of, hundreds of those homes have been actually washed away. Some lives have actually died in the process. Many, many other homes, many other thousands of homes have been severely affected. We, we hope as a congregation that we, we continue to think and be sensitive to, to the needs that are around us at this time and we want to think of ways, practical ways, that we want to help those who have been affected by the floods. In situations like that, we, we realize, especially when, when actually lives are lost, when, when entire edifices, homes that have been built on a pretty good foundation have been just washed away, when things like that hit us, we're reminded. We're reminded how weak we are when we face the forces of nature. We realize, we realize how utterly helpless we are in stopping the forces of nature. Can the forces of nature stop people's plants? Sure they can. People make plans a flood like this comes, and in the, in some, in the, the worst situation, people die, and all their plans stop suddenly. In other situations, people have to move out of their homes for a long while until their homes might, could be repaired, if they can be repaired. When forces of nature come against us, oftentimes the plans of men must change. Can the forces of nature stop the plans of God? Can the forces of nature stop the plans of God? We know that nature can stop our plans, but can nature stop God's plans? Well, this morning I invite you to open Scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 27. We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 28, verse 10. So it's a little bit of a longer passage. Um, as we consider together the unstoppable plan of God, the unstoppable plan.
plan of God. If you uh, are, did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab a Bible, providing the chair in front of you. It's a black Bible. You may find this passage on page number 936. By the way, if you do not own a Bible, uh, the Bibles we use here in our services are the English Standard Version. If you don't have one and you'd like to have one, feel free to, call, to take it home. It's yours to, uh, to enjoy. Let's uh, read God's Word this morning as we continue through our sermon series in the book of Acts. Here's the Word of the Lord. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was a city of Lycae. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from, here, from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both, both southwest and northwest, and spending the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they wait, waited anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeastner, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Gauda, we managed with difficulty to, to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports under, to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. 
since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belonged and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the boat, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice had not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. When one day had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place, there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever at his entry. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They were also honored. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's go to him in prayer. Ask God by his spirit to speak to our hearts. Will you join me? Father, thank you that you have given us an account with so much detail of your ability and your power to save. Father, I pray that you speak to our hearts. Speak to those among us who might be discouraged. Speak to those among us who might have lost all hope. We pray that your word might encourage them. But also we pray that you would speak to us as we, as we can learn how to encourage one another and how to trust in you and in your unstoppable plans. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor, and through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, we are following Paul uh, in his last journey, or the last segment of his journey to Rome. We are moving rapidly to Rome, with much difficulty as well. A year ago, when we started this series of sermons in the book of Acts, um, I doubt you remember this, but I'm reminding you all. A year ago, when we, we did an overview of the whole book of Acts, we said that one of the ways, one of the many ways we can look at the book of Acts is to see the journey of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. The journey of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. And uh, this journey in this chapter, we see it in the most tangible way in the most realistic of ways, with all the bells and whistles of the difficulties encountered by Paul as he actually traveled to Rome. Verse 1 starts by saying, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. And Luke relates to us the great, in, in some great detail this journey. It's a sea travel journey. Now, in the ancient world, this kind of sea traveling uh, journey or journeying or talking about sea travels was, a, was very entertaining. As a matter of fact, we find these kind of stories in the classic uh, Greek uh, literature writings. And uh, as a matter of fact, because there's, there are quite a few of these kinds of tales in classical Greek literature, some commentators had the creativity um, to think and, and suggest that actually this story never happened. It's just a tale. Because it's so similar with other tales of antiquity. However, um, this is far, far, far from the truth. For one, Luke is actually an eyewitness in the story. There's a few places in the book of Acts where the pronoun of the story moves from, the, from they, they did this, or this is what happened to them, to we. And whenever that we happens, whenever you see that presence of we in the book of Acts, it's a, sim it's a simple, pretty clear uh, grammatical pointer that now Luke is also on the journey. He is actually on the ship. He's actually experiencing firsthand 
all the stuff that was happening. Well, perhaps this is one of the reasons why the story has so much detail. Didn't you say, weren't you surprised? What is a story of this length with so much detail? What is it doing at the, book, at the end of the book of Acts? Well, for one, Luke was on it. He could, he could, he could speak. He could tell you what happened in lots of detail. There's a second reason why this story is given so much emphasis. See, prior to chapter uh, 27, we saw how um, several chapters prior to that, Paul had faced all kinds of opposition, particularly from Jewish leaders that tried to stop him, tried to kill him. So he could never, not, not, not arrive in Rome for sure, but not even live. And we saw how actually all their plans, humanly speaking, all the human plans against Paul, against the gospel reaching Rome, had failed. The plan, of God, the plan to go to Rome was not able to be stopped by humans. Was this plan stoppable by nature? If humans could not stop Paul to go on to Rome, could nature stop it? Luke gives us two, two parts, two incidents. Threat on a ship, threat from a, from a viper. Threat from the, the forces of, of water that cannot be contained, cannot be controlled. Threat from the venom of a viper. Can these natural forces stop Paul to arrive to Rome? Well, if... Uh, if this was just Paul's plan to get to Rome, uh, it may have failed. Most likely, it would have failed. But this journey wasn't Paul's plan alone. It was actually God's plan. Remember chapter 23, the first time we saw a pretty clear attack against Paul by the Jewish leaders. The Lord appeared to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11, and uh, told him, Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Who determined that Paul had to get to Rome? Who determined that Paul had to get to Rome to testify about Christ there? God. This was God's plan. And when God had determined a plan, friends, no forces of nature, not even of nature, can stand against him. When people give up on all hope of survival, God... It's mighty to save. Nothing can stop God's plan to get Paul to testify in Rome. But there's a third reason why Luke gives us this, so much detail in this story. Um, some, of the, some of the people who actually read uh, the Greek language, ancient Greek, very fluently and are able to understand the intricacies of the Greek language very clearly, when they look at this passage, they actually find and, and notice that this is actually one of the best most eloquent passages of Greek writing in the whole book of Acts. That actually there's so much, so much artistry in, in bringing about this story, so much elegance that it's actually unusual for, for the rest of book, the book of Acts. And friend, why, would, why would Luke actually write, perhaps even poetically, or with so much eloquence, this story of, of this shipwreck and Paul's uh, threat by a viper? Why? What's the point of so much detail? What's the point of so much elegance in writing this chapter? Well, Luke doesn't want to go alone on this journey. 
He wants to take his readers with him. He wants us to, to be on that journey. He wants us to, to not only to know the truth that he's going to communicate to us, he wants us to, to experience it. He wants us to feel it as well. So that both our, heart, our heads, our minds, and our hearts can actually feel the power of God who's mighty to save as we go through this journey along with him. So friends, Luke wants us to know afresh that's not the forces of nature that are unstoppable. Luke wants us to know that it's God's plan that is unstoppable. Even if nature cannot be stopped by mankind, Christians serve a God whose plans cannot be stopped, not even by the forces of nature. He's a God who created this nature, if you remember, and everything in it. He created the waters. He created the wind. He created the earth and everything on it. And when His Son, His only begotten Son, His name is Jesus, when He came and walked on earth, one day Jesus found Himself sound asleep on a boat that was tossed in a storm. And His disciples were terrified to death by the storm, right? And they, they wake Jesus and say, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? And what does Jesus do? He stands up. He rebuked the wind and the sea. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. Friends, God doesn't have to arm wrestle with the forces of nature to see who's the strongest. God speaks to nature. That's a God we serve. That's His power. It is a power of His Word. God's plan for Paul's journey to Rome had already, already been revealed in chapter 23 of the book of Acts. And now we see that his plans are unstoppable. Luke wants us, his readers, to know this truth and to feel it. To be convinced by the truth both in our minds and our hearts. Now, for, for most of us, friends, we know theoretically that God's plan is unstoppable. If you've been a Christian a long time, you've heard this truth before. This is, this is not a new truth. But have our hearts embraced this truth? And even if we have embraced it, Oh, friends, we need to be reminded and strengthened in our hearts that this truth is true. God's plans are unstoppable, no matter what forces work against Him. So let's look at, uh, at this story briefly. Um, I'd like for you, there's a lot of details. There's many ways we could have organized uh, talking about the story. But I'd like for you to consider three pictures or three stops. This is a journey. This, we're going to have three stops along the way, three rest areas, but there's no rest in, these, in this journey, as you have already heard from the details. But think of the three stops, and we are going to stop to focus on what Luke is emphasizing as he's narrating the story. The first one is this, the first stop, when all hope is abandoned. When all hope is abandoned. From verse 2 to verse 8, we get a description of the travel route by ship. Um, along the coast, three times in, in these first eight verses, we're told that the nature of their journey was difficult. Nature was against them. And yet in verse 8, they reached this port called, called Fair Havens, but actually the name did not match what it was. It was not fair at all. Uh, it was not a good situation for them to stay for the winter there. So despite Paul's initial uh, warning, uh, the ship continues to move on to the next place called Phoenix. Of course, who would listen to a prisoner 
right? I mean, why would, why would the captain, why would the sailors, the professional guys, listen to a passenger on the ship, especially since he was a, a prisoner? I mean, really? That's not hard. Move on. So they go on. They, it's risky. Um, sailing season was already closed. It was already past the fast, the Jewish fast. So sailing season was already closed, and yet this ship decides to move on for a number of other reasons that we could talk about. Once they leave the port, they had some surprisingly good weather. They thought initially, hey, our risk was worthwhile. Let's, uh, this thing is, is taking on. We're going we're gonna to get there. But immediately the unexpected happens or the expected that they really hoped would not happen did happen. A major storm comes down from the land. So as the sh- ship was going alongside the coast, this storm actually came from the land towards the sea. So actually it blew the ship into the sea even further down, big time, about 400 miles away from where they were. And by the way, commentators think that if Phoenix was a place they think it was, that place was only 40 miles away from Fair Havens. So can you just imagine? You're just hoping to take a 40-mile trip, and the storm comes, and you're blown 400 miles. Pretty sad. But it's not just a journey to 400, an extra 400 miles that, that was difficult. It was, look, look, at, look at from verse 14 to 20. Luke gives us a description, a detailed description of how the crew tried to save the ship and their own lives. I'm going to read quickly through these verses and just highlight some things. It's as if Luke wants us to see the action, how it unfolded, how one thing led to another, and how in the end, where it brought them. Look at verse 15. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Verse 16. We managed with some difficulty or with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. That was the, 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 the boat that they could use to get away from the big ship. In verse 17, they use supports to undergird the ship. Uh, this, these supports, commentators think, they actually had to rope the boat to actually secure it, not to disintegrate because the storm was so high. So they actually had to rope the boat again with extra security. Verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 17, they also lowered the gear and were thus driven along. Verse 18, they began to jettison the cargo. Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Friends, Luke wants us to feel how one thing led to another. And the last stop here, and the first stop we're going to look at, is that all hope to be saved is abandoned. Now, friends, it's one thing to lose your stuff. It's one thing to, to lose the cargo on the ship. It's one thing to, to, to realize, you know, this ship might be shipwrecked. It's a different thing when you actually lose hope of being rescued for your life. It's not just losing your home. It's actually losing hope of actually being found and actually the possibility of dying in the midst of the sea. Have you ever been in a place of that kind of hopelessness? Not simply in danger or in peril, but in the place where all hope of being rescued, all hope of 
of continuing life is gone. It's a place where you conclude, game over. Utterly, utterly hopeless. Hopeless not simply in rescuing my stuff, getting my life back together. Hopeless for life itself. In this story, those who reached this place of abandoning all hope included the professional sailors who just a few days earlier were very confident, despite the warnings, despite the, the season being knowingly dangerous, they were confident they could do it. These were, these were men who, who were traveling on the sea all the time. It's they who had lost hope of being saved. It is not hopelessness of of people who are depressed. It's not just the hopelessness of people who are just weak. It's not the hopelessness of people who are insecure. It's the hopelessness of people who are very confident in their own abilities. In Luke's narration of the story, this is the first picture for us to ponder at and to stop and consider the place when all hope has been abandoned. Friends, it's at this point of sheer, utter hopelessness that God intervenes. Of course, we would like God to intervene a little earlier. We would have liked God to intervene, you know, two weeks ago. For perhaps for, for that vision to come to Paul two weeks earlier and for Paul to have a very strong uh, account of, of a visionary experience and say, an angel of the Lord appeared. We should not go on the ship. We need to stop. We cannot go. But, but the Lord did not intervene in that way until at this moment. Now, on one side, why doesn't God intervene earlier? The, the short answer is we don't know. We just don't know. God's wisdom is inscrutable. God's, God's wisdom and knowledge is so vast that we cannot understand His eternal plan. Why doesn't God show up earlier in the midst of tragedy? Why does He let things to get to the bottom of the river, the bottom of the rock, until all hope is gone? Why? We don't know. But we do know something, and here's what we do know. That when you reach the point of utter, total, absolute hopelessness, God often meets us there. It's in the midst of total hopelessness that, that God often meets they, His people there. He often lets people get there so in order to show them that on their own, they can never be saved. This lesson of God's intervention in our total hopelessness actually is a pattern of how sinners are saved. It's actually a pattern of the story of conversion itself. You know, the, the gospel is a story of actually telling us the truth of who we are, that we are actually sinners. We're sinners. Yes, we're made in God's image, and God made us to belong to Him, but we have rebelled against Him. And because of that rebellion, we have actually triggered God's wrath against us. That, friends, that's, that's a pretty bad news. And, and, and if that's not bad enough, here's the next news, and this is even worse. Not only have we incurred God's wrath against us, we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make it right with God on our terms, on our strength, in our power. No matter how many good things we would try to do, no matter how well we would try to behave, no matter how much we would try to fix our lives, we will never, ever be able to save ourselves. Until all hope is abandoned, 
And until we realize that unless God would intervene, unless God would do something, there's no way that I would be saved. And friends, that's, that's the story of the gospel. That's a pattern of the good news, is that sinners with no hope, no hope in what you can do, except to call on God to save. That's the only thing. And unless God intervenes to actually save us, to give us a new heart, a new birth, a new spirit, to cleanse us from our rebellion, to change us from inside out, unless God does that, we have no way of actually being made right with God. Friends, God has provided a way. And His way is through Jesus, His Son, who paid the penalty of our rebellion, so that through His death and resurrection, those who call on God to be saved, those who call on Him and ask of God to save them, those who repent of their sins, turn away from their sins and embrace Christ by faith, they will be granted an eternal salvation. Friends, this, this story of, of a place when all hope is lost is just a pattern of how God meets people when all hope has been lost, when people reach the end of their rope. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there at the end of the rope? You may have not been there physically. You may not have been there in your physical life with the situations in your life, although some of you may have come very close to feeling that. But what about spiritually? Have you come to an end of your rope spiritually? When you have come to realize that you're not on a ship that is going to shipwreck, and there's no way for you to be saved unless God does something in your life. Friend, I hope that, that you would call on Him. And if you'd like to know how to do that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. The first stop that Luke actually wants us to see is that the ship and everybody on the ship got to a point of, of no hope. All hope was abandoned. Second stop, second picture that Luke wants to point out is when a prisoner offers true hope. When a prisoner offers true hope. Note this Paul's address in verse 21. Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, friends, how could Paul say this so confidently? Is this just optimism in the face of disaster? Is, this, is Paul a motivational speaker, just cheerleading them on, injecting them with some with some? Uh, encouraging, optimistic thinking, positive thinking kind of stuff? Is this what's going on here? Of course not. What, what, what enables Paul to, to be so sure and so encouraging, but also so specific, is that actually an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Paul had very specific instructions from the angel of the Lord about the situation. What's amazing, though, is that this hope comes not through the captain of the ship, not through the centurion, not through the soldiers, not through the sailors. This hope is given through a prisoner. It's amazing, friends, that in hopeless situations like that, status no longer matters. It's amazing that bank accounts no longer matter when you're in a ship like that. Doesn't, it didn't matter if you owned the ship or if you were in bondage and imprisoned on that ship. It really didn't matter what status you were on 
that ship. What mattered, the only thing that mattered, is whether or not there was a connection to the true God who's able to give true hope, whose plan is unstoppable. Paul was in the plan of God. Because Paul was in the plan of God, he was able to offer hope to the people on that boat because God revealed to Paul his plan and how that plan is unstoppable. Notice several things about the hope Paul gave. If, by the way, if you're taking notes, we're in point two of the sermon. We're going to have three subpoints: The hope that Paul gave um, to the people on the ship. First of all, it was a hope that came from his God. Notice in verse 23 how Paul describes um, this vision that he had. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Did you notice how Paul described his God to the rest of the ship? The God to whom I belong and whom I worship? Friend, I have a question for you. Have you ever described your God this way? The God to whom I belong? The God whom I worship? It's amazing that Paul, a prisoner, described his God in this way. What do you mean? You belong to this God and yet you're a prisoner. Some people want God's protection. How, how, are you, how are you God's... How do you belong to God if He's letting you in this stuff? In the midst of a, of a, of a shipwreck. Now, some people want God's protection without belong, wanting to belong to God. Or some people want to worship God without wanting to belong to Him. As if you could actually separate those two. Um, it's, it's illogical, I know. People just want God's protection without belonging to Him, without worshiping Him. And yet, Paul described his God as the God to whom I belong, whom I worship. Would you describe your God this way? Try next week. Try to figure out a way next, sometime next week. When you, when you meet someone and you talk to someone, hey, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, this is what He says. This is what He teaches us. Just try to describe your God this way sometime this week. It might stir up some interesting conversations. Paul wants to know that the God who gives us hope is a personal God, a God who loves His people to belong to Him. Not just to worship Him, but to belong to Him. I love the, the, the words of the song, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There is a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. It's not only do we look to Jesus, do we look to this God. We want to belong to Him. We want to worship Him. second thing about the hope is that Paul gave this hope based on God's revelation. Notice that the angel, what the angel revealed to Paul the previous night, verse 24. Do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Amazing. A prisoner now becomes in charge of the ship. Amazing. It was God's plan that Paul should stand before Caesar. This was a specific promise. And then Paul affirms in verse 25, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. Now let me give a word of caution about how we oftentimes give hope to people who are in trouble in circumstances. Sometimes we would say, oh, 
don't worry, it'll be okay. Friends, that's a dangerous thing to say. If anything, sometimes Christians fall, feel, fall in the trap of, of, of giving cheap promises of specific outcomes that were never promised for that particular situation. In this case, Paul gets very specific outcomes from the angel, and he's able to make these promises because the specific outcomes were for that specific situation in a very clear way. So Paul could speak confidently, and by the way, even then he didn't say, it'll be okay. He said, no, the ship will be lost, but you guys won't lose your life. If you're, if you're the owner of the ship, you might as well think, hey, if I'm losing my ship, I might as well lose my life as well, right? <laughs> so be careful how, how we think about giving promises and hope to people who are in danger. Some things will never be okay ever again. And if they want to cling on to their boat, they'll never see their boat again. So don't give them cheap promises. Be cautious with the promises we give to people who are in danger or people who are distraught. When we think about God's promises, think about those promises that have an absolute eternal significance at all times. Uh, one thing, one of the promises Jesus gave that will be true for sure, no matter what happens, is expect for wars to come. Expect for earthquakes to come. Expect for natural disasters to come. They're all signs that point to my coming. The one promise that is true in all circumstances is that God is coming back. So, talk about a person in, in tragedy. Rather than thinking about specific outcomes, point further to the fact that God had promised in the midst of tragedy that actually difficulties will come before His coming. He's coming to rescue His people. In the midst, no matter what we lose in this earth, there's a, a, an eternal loss that we can incur if we don't turn to Him. We can give eternal promises and make those clear, and we speak those in confidence, but be careful of not giving cheap, unfounded promises that are, we, we don't have confidence over them. Paul gave his hope based on God's revelation. A third thing, Paul, Paul's hope was based on God's character. Look at verse 25, Paul said, I have faith that God it will in God that it will happen exactly as I have been told, as, I, as God has planned it. Now, if we know specific outcomes of trials, if God somehow reveals to us miraculously by His Spirit, that's a different situation. But very few or ever we, we get to have that kind of concrete knowledge of the future. God may not reveal these outcomes, specific outcomes to us, and yet what we can point to clearly is not just God's eternal promises, we can also point to God's solid character. Whatever God plans, He will do. Someone might be skeptical and respond, well, if Paul trusted in God's character, why was Paul a prisoner? Why did God, Paul, why did God allow Paul to be on that boat uh, that was going to shipwreck? Friends, trusting in God's character is not an insurance that uh, will protect us from difficulties in life. As a matter of fact, uh, this was not Paul's first shipwreck. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes a number of his weaknesses, and there he says that he has been shipwrecked three times. And yet he could speak about his God as the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. He could speak about the, his God as he will do exactly as he has said. 
Here's a man who has gone through some tremendous difficulty in his life, and yet he's able to speak of his God with this kind of confidence. Oh, friend, I hope, I hope we can learn from him. I hope that we can learn from Paul, the way he speaks about his God. It is that kind of view of God that enables us to have hope and give hope to people. Last but not least, so far we've considered two stops. The stop where all hope is abandoned. The stop where a prisoner offers hope. The last stop, God's plan does not make our actions trivial. I want to make this clear because sometimes when we focus so much on, on emphasizing the power of God, on emphasizing the, the fact that God's plan is unstoppable, when we think about that and emphasize that truth, some would, would be led by human logic to think that then our human actions are, are no longer true, significant actions. They're no longer true, truly meaningful if really God's plan is unstoppable. If God can do whatever He wants, then why do I have to worry? Why do I have to, to do something? Why am I still to be involved in this picture? Why not just be a lazy couch potato letting and waiting for life to happen and for destiny to run its course? Well, friends, the third thing we see here is that actually God's plan does not make human actions, our actions, trivial. There's a number of things we could look at. Uh, briefly, once Paul brings hope, notice he doesn't assume that their actions become trivial just because God revealed this destiny to them. Notice what Paul says to the centurion when the sailors want to escape in verse 31. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Did you see that? In other words, there's human, the actions of humans are still important, still meaningful. We can't just give up responsibility for responsible action. God's plan does not make our choices trivial. We're responsible for what we do. God's plan to save the entire ship actually included the ongoing presence of the sailors to do their part, to remain on the ship with everyone else. In other words, God's plan involves not only the specific outcome, but also His plans involves the means by which He will bring about that safety and those plans. Sometimes people say, well, God has already chosen from eternity past those who belong to Him. Why do we have to evangelize? Because God determined that the way He's elect, will be elected, and come into the knowledge of the truth will be through evangelism. You just can't, you can't, can't avoid that. God has planned not only the outcome, but also the means. Uh, we see, again, the, 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 the human responsibility in the, in the rest of the chapter. Paul takes responsibility to encourage the people on the ship in very practical ways to eat. <laughs> to eat. Yes, Paul feels responsible. He could say, okay, if you guys don't want to eat, that's fine. Whatever you want. No, he encourages them to eat. It says, for it will give you strength. And then he says, not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. Paul encourages them to act responsibly. God promised to rescue them, but Paul must encourage them to eat. Just because God is in, our, in control of our destinies does not mean that we should throw up our hands in the air and become irresponsible. Another decision we see is that uh, the, 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 the people actually end up throwing the wheat into the, the ship. They still do something on the boat in order to save themselves, right? They still have to act and carry out whatever they could to, to preserve that ship as much as they could, even though they knew it was, or they heard it was not going to be preserved. Another decision, the soldiers plan to kill Paul and actually plan to kill all the prisoners. 
And here's God using the decision of a Roman centurion who actually wanted to save only Paul's life. And because he wanted to save Paul's life, actually all the lives of all the prisoners are protected. Again, God's plan comes to fruition. It's fulfilled. God's plan will not be stopped. But that does not mean that the Roman centurion could just stay there and watch and see whatever his soldiers had to do. He had to act responsibly. Do you see how it works? God's plan is unstoppable, and yet human, human actions still have to be carried out. We are not irresponsible, and we cannot just throw up our hands. In the last verse 44, the last sentence of this chapter reads this way, And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. His bottom line is that God's unstoppable plan does not make our actions trivial. We must act with responsibility, even if God revealed to us specific outcomes. So, friends, as we think about, about God's unstoppable plan, we, we consider three stops in this journey. A stop at the place where all hope is abandoned. That's where God can meet you, and He will meet you there. A place where a prisoner offers hope, a hope based on God, a hope based on His revelation, a hope based on His character and trustworthiness. Lastly, God's plan does not make our actions trivial. Praise be to God, friends, that even as we consider and we come to the end of the book of Acts, we have one more chapter left, or just half a chapter, we're reminded nothing can stop the plan of the gospel to spread. I love how one of the, one of the uh, older heroes of the faith said this in the face of discouragement in the gospel, that their efforts seem to, to, to bear no fruit, and they seem like humanly they, they failed. He said this, even though our efforts may have failed, what we stand for will never fail. Well, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will reach everyone who's God, who's God's plan, in, whose plan, in whose plan in mind God has attempted and planned it to reach. He calls us to take it. He calls us to be engaged in it. We cannot act irresponsibly in that. But friends, confidence, our encouragement, our hope is the unstoppable plan of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you that it is your character, your power, the nature of your word and plan. It, shall, it should not fail. Lord, this morning, thank you for reminding us of that. Thank you for reminding us of, of the true source of hope, of the true place of, of security, the true place of safety. The most safe place is to be in your plan, for your plan will not fail. Lord, enable us, give us a hard desire, to desire to be, to live our lives in your plan. May we seek to to align our lives, our priorities, everything about us, to be in line with your plan, for it will not fail. Lord, bless your church with strength and confidence in this kind of trust in you. May we put all our faith in you in the days to come.